0: On Monday the 27th of July 1857, Benjamin Disraeli, one of the opposition party leaders in the UK Parliament, rose to make a long and impassioned speech. He was a long-standing and prominent critic of the British East India Company, having once argued that it should be removed from its role as ruler of British-controlled India. Now he had watched as Britain's most important overseas possession burned in the flames of revolt an uprising caused by the same company that Disraeli had opposed. Hindsight makes wise men of us all, but Disraeli has seen this coming from a mile off. He had called for this debate as ever more grave news emanated from the subcontinent, hauling the government minister that had done just such a woeful job overseeing the East India Company. That was the president of the Board of Control, to answer for his actions. This would not be a short oration. Three hours, he estimated, but he had no intention of leaving anything on the table. He and his aides had been working all day on this, and now was his moment. He shuffled his papers and rose to the dispatch box. Sir, I hardly know anything more interesting. I am sure there are a few things more instructive than to recall the commencement of great events. It is remarkable how insignificant incidents at first blush have appeared which have proved to be pregnant with momentous consequence. A street riot at Boston and at Paris turned out to be the two great revolutions of modern times. And so, some few weeks ago, when it appeared in the newspapers that there was a mutiny in a native regiment in India, I dare say few people read the paragraph. I dare say, indeed, most persons turned for amusement to the more exciting discussions in this house on questions of domestic interest. When the first news arrived of the occupation of Delhi by the rebels, I thought I was only performing my duty in addressing some inquiries to Her Majesty's ministers as to their opinions with regard to the cause of those remarkable events and the exact position of affairs. I am bound to say that, at the time, the answer which I received impressed me with the feeling that Her Majesty's Ministers did not view the events which had occurred in that spirit which I thought their latent importance demanded. He was now settling into his speech, fixing his opposite number with a piercing glare as he did so. He outlined the lies told by the Government and the East India Company how they had misled the country at the state of India and the corruption that had preceded this rebellion. He showed his expertise in the field, detailing his knowledge of Indian history and culture, and how misunderstandings and willful ignorance of those they had presumed to rule had led the company to this catastrophe. He emphasised the abolition of the rule, allowing heirs to states to be adoptive sons, such as in the case of the small princely state of Jansi, whose Queen Regent, Rani Lakshmi Bai, had been carted out of her palace and deprived of her inheritance. He was a speaker that demanded attention, and even though the speech was now moving well past the second hour, he still held his audience in the palm of his hand. But a great speech is nothing without a good resolution, a conclusion. So what to do now, he posed. You ought at once, whether you receive news of success or of defeat, to tell the people of India that the relations between them and their real ruler and sovereign Queen Victoria shall now be drawn nearer. You must act upon the opinion of India on that subject immediately, and you can only act upon the opinion of eastern nations through their imagination. You ought to have a royal commission sent by the Queen from this country to India immediately, to inquire into the grievances of the various classes of that population. You ought to issue a royal proclamation to the people of India, declaring that the Queen of England is not a sovereign who will countenance the violation of treaties, that the Queen of England is not a sovereign who will disturb the settlement of property, that the Queen of England is a sovereign who will respect their laws, their usages, their customs, and, above all, their religion. Do this, and do this not in a corner, but in a mode and manner that will attract universal attention and excite the general hope of Hindustan. And you will do as much as all your fleets and armies can achieve. But to do this you must act with vigour. You must send to that country competent men, men of high station and ability, such as would entitle them to such office, and who will appear in Hindustan in the Queen's name and with the Queen's authority. He sat down, taking a glass of water with him as he rested from his labours. The President of the Board of Control stood up to give his rebuttal, but no one was in any doubt that Disraeli had trounced him long before he'd opened his mouth. The East India Company was finished. But it wasn't thanks to the UK government. It wasn't even Disraeli. It was down to the bravery and courage of a oppressed people who had risen up and declared no more Welcome to the Other Half. Episode 3.20, Rani Lakshmi Bhai of Jhansi, written in blood that cannot be erased. I hope that you all enjoyed my chat with Claire Miles last time. I do love speaking to fellow enthusiasts and sharing their work with you. If you'd like to hear more episodes like that, then please do let me know. But now it's time to get back to the show and the second part of this series of Rani Lakshmi Bai. Last time, I did a potted history of colonial India up to 1857, outlining the cause of the revolt that year and what sparked it. I also introduced our heroine, Rani Lakshmi Bhai, looking at her elevation from prominent daughter to king's wife, and finally to the controversy surrounding the annexation of Jhansi by the East India Company. Today, we see her reaction to the outbreak of the revolt, And how she came to be one of its most famous leaders. But before we get going, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon backers who keep this show going. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Jhansi was not at the epicentre of the sepoy mutiny that set off the Indian Rebellion of 1857. Mangal Pandey launched his act of resistance in Barakpur on the 29th of March on the outskirts of Calcutta, and it was in Bengal where most of the early fighting took place. These early ripples turned into waves through April, and by May there were thousands of Indian mutineers under arms, led by the elderly Mughal emperor Bahadur Shah. Yet, even as this was going on, Jhansi was quiet. Indeed, Canton Skeen, the political and administrative officer of the province, wrote to the Governor-General in May that, I do not think there is any cause for alarm about this neighbourhood. However, it was not long before the rebellion came to Jhansi. The Sepoy garrison was primarily made up of soldiers from Bengal and they soon heard from family and friends what was going on back home. They mutinied in solidarity with their brothers, killing all the British officers that they could find. All remaining British inhabitants of the city, mostly women and children, took refuge in the city fort. The mutineers had the city's arsenal and a massive superiority in manpower, and the British had no real hope of relief. Their only hope ironically, was the very woman whom they had deposed some three years earlier. Despite her shabby treatment at the hands of the East India Company, Rani Lakshmi Bai had not yet risen in rebellion, and her small retinue of troops had not joined in the attack. The British commander pleaded with her to, quote, take your kingdom and hold it along with the adjoining territory until the British authority is reestablished. Now, what happened next is highly disputed the facts are that the british negotiated terms of surrender with their safety and that of their wives and children guaranteed however the mutineers broke their word and massacred them that all happened the dispute is over the involvement of rani lakshmibai generally british sources paint her very treacherously stating that she herself promised them safe passage on her honour and then double-crossed them to get revenge for the theft of her kingdom. More sympathetic Indian sources have her not being involved at all. No British message reached her at all. The massacre was all the work of the sepoys. There are also some variants in between that have Rani offering safe passage, but the soldiers disobeying her instructions. Now, to me it seems extremely unlikely that Rani Lakshmi Bai would have ordered the massacre. It was an incredibly provocative act that would have gained her nothing but the hardening of the resolve of her enemies. From everything that we know of her, she was no foolish move. The most famous accuser of Rani Lakshmi Bai was a British survivor of the massacre, a Mrs Mutlow, whose husband and brother were killed she claimed to have seen Rani's signature on an offer of safe passage. But her report is full of inconsistencies and was written after the end of the rebellion in any case. Rani herself explained her actions in two letters to the East India Company's local commissioner, Major Erskine, soon after the massacre. She claimed that the mutineers, quote, "...through their faithlessness, cruelty and violence," killed all the European civil and military officers, the clerks, and all their families. And the Rani not being able to assist them for want of guns and soldiers, as she had only a hundred or fifty people engaged in guarding her house, she could render them no aid, which she very much regrets. That they, the mutineers, afterwards behaved with much violence against herself and servants, and extorted a great deal of money from her. She went on to say that they had forced her to take control of the state because, quote, if she at all hesitated to comply with their requests, they would blow up her palace with guns. The simple fact here is that we'll never know the truth for sure. But the narratives emanating from Jansi set the stage for the rest of the conflict. After this massacre of innocence, there could be no quarter given to the mutineers, and nor to their queen, to whom the British ascribed blame either by accident or design, those sepoys had bound Rani to their fate. For them, it would be liberty or death. The massacre had precluded all other outcomes. It's worth saying that massacres were very much the order of the day throughout the rebellion. Gandhi is supposed to have said that an eye for an eye and soon the whole world is blind, and nowhere is that more true than India in 1857. Massacre begat massacre, leading to an ever-increasingly spinning cycle of violence. As she stated in her letter, Rani took control of Jhansi following the massacre, either by her own free will or at the mutineer's gunpoint. Probably a bit of both, if we're honest. And Major Erskine at first sided with her, sending a proclamation saying that thousands of European soldiers were on their way and that, in the meantime, quote, The Rani will rule in the name of the British government, and according to the customs of the British government, and I hereby call on all, great and small, to obey the Rani, and to pay the government revenue to her, for which they will receive credit. And so, for a few short months, Jansi was at peace. While much of northern and central India burned, Jansi was ruled by the Rani, with the agreement of both the British and the rebels. Now, this was not to say that the East India Company believed Rani's account. In late July, the Governor-General wrote to Major Erskine, stating, quote, It appears that the Rani did lend assistance to the mutineers and rebels, and that she gave guns and men. That said, the British had bigger fish to fry than Little Jhansi and spent the rest of the year trying to retake and hold the major cities and fortresses across India. In September 1857, they retook Delhi and relieved the besieged garrison of Lucknow, allowing them to withdraw in good order. Meanwhile, Rani set about the business of ruling Jhansi, and by all accounts, she was very good at it. She enacted policies to help the poor and made herself too available to her people in hearing grievances and making judgments. She did also, though, find time to continue her military training something that had taken a back seat while her husband was alive. Every morning she woke at 4am to begin her exercise regimen, which included horse riding and fencing. And while this appears to have been something very much that she enjoyed, perhaps she knew that, eventually, she would need these skills. Famously, she eschewed rifles and pistols, preferring to do battle with a sword. There was some sporadic fighting in Jansi during this period, but this was mainly focused on fighting off raids from other Indian states who were looking to take advantage of the anarchic situation to grab some territory at Jansi's expense. However, things changed in January 1858 with the return of the local political agent, Sir Robert Hamilton. He was no fan of the Rani, and with the fall of Delhi he was keen to reclaim Jhansi for the East India Company. Rani wrote to him on his arrival, restating her claimed innocence in the involvement in the massacre and the great success she was having in ruling Jhansi on behalf of the British. She also complained at the lack of support she was getting to fight off the other rebel kingdoms, saying that, The services of the British troops for the present are required at this quarter. As these short-sighted individuals seem unmindful of the British supremacy and do their best to ruin myself and the whole country, I beg you will give me your support in the best way you can, and thus save myself and the people who are reduced to the last extremity and are not able to cope with the enemy. So, even at this stage, Rani was asking for more company troops to be sent to Jhansi, not fewer. Her strategy seems to have been to try and maintain the status quo, and portray herself as supremely loyal to the British. She had what she wanted, the rights granted to her by her husband, and further rebellion would only endanger that. Her cause, though, was not aided by news of yet another massacre of a British garrison and their families, this time at Cornpor. In a situation very similar to that in Jancy, the sepoys had mutinied and British officers and their families had barricaded themselves in the fort. The leader of the mutineers had promised safe passage, but his troops went back on their word. Some 900 surrendering men, women and children were summarily killed. Again, history is divided on the complicity of the leader in this. The similarity between this case and that of the Rani's hardened British minds against her pleas of innocence. And so, they sent General Sir Hugh Rose to Jhansi to take back the princely state. This left Rani with no alternative. She ended her policy of appeasement and went full Winston Churchill. She issued a declaration of rebellion, calling on Hindus and Muslims alike to unite under her banner. Quote, God has created you for the destruction of the destroyers of your creed. But it is evident to all men that these English are perverters of all men's religion. From time immemorial have they endeavoured to contaminate the Hindu and Muslim religions by producing and circulating religious books through the medium of missionaries and extirpating such books as afford arguments against them. Various endeavours have they made. Forcible Remarriage of Hindu Widows Second, the abolition of the ancient rite of Suti. Third, the exaltation of those who embrace the Christian faith. So also the succession to the thrones of Hindu princes is only permitted to legitimate sons. Adopted sons are prohibited from succession. These are the stratagems by which the Europeans deprive us of our thrones and wealth. They have forced the prisoners to eat their bread. They powdered bones and mixed with flour, etc., and exposed it for sale. They ordered the Brahmins and others attached to the army to bite greased cartridges. I conjure to the Hindus in the name of Gunga, Tulsi, and Salakram, and the Muslims by the name of Allah and the Quran, and entreat them to join us in destroying the English to their mutual welfare. Let not this opportunity pass away. No, O people, you will never have such another. This is quite the change in tone from the woman who only a month before had begged Hamilton to send more company troops to defend her from the very people she now wanted to flock to her side. And she was very successful in doing so. Some 14,000 volunteers rallied to her banner, along with around 1,500 sepoys, far outnumbering the advancing Sir Hugh Rose, who had only two small brigades, half of which were sepoys as well. However, his troops were well-trained, professional soldiers who were loyal to the British, while Rani's were much more of a ragtag, scrappy kind of force. On the 20th of March 1858, Rose's troops arrived at Jansi and put the city to siege. He demanded that the Rani surrender, but she wasn't in the mood. She famously stated, quote, We fight for independence. In the words of Lord Krishna, we will, if we are victorious, enjoy the fruits of victory. If defeated and killed on the field of battle, we shall surely earn eternal glory and salvation. This defiance was met with a hail of artillery fire as the British sought to batter down the city walls. While the city was well defended, Rani knew that she could not hold on for long. Her hopes lay with a rebel army of some 20,000, which marched to her aid, but they were no match for Rose's men. Although heavily outnumbered, they quickly fought off the rebels, putting them to flight. They then once again turned their attentions on Jancy, and the guns once again blazed. One witness within the city recalled the night of the 2nd of April. Quote, The British gunners did their damnedest that night. Their red-hot balls came over the city and fought like rains in the autumn. No one could get a wink of sleep. The Rani girded her sword and went personally to supervise the counterfire. She rewarded the gunners handsomely, and they reopened the silenced guns. The next day, Rose ordered an assault on the city and soon his troops breached the walls. Once in, they gave no quarter. Revenge was on their minds and no one was spared. One British observer wrote, quote, death was flying from house to house with mercurial speed. Not a single man was spared. The streets began to run with blood. Thousands, possibly tens of thousands of men, women and children perished in the sack of the city. But in the tumult, Rani was able to escape, along with her adopted son, Demodar Rao. Tales of her flight have become legendary. Stories range from the romantic to the sly and slippery. The same witness who saw Rani on the city walls recall that the British discovered her as she was escaping, but she managed to escape in the confusion. Another British witness describes a thrilling chase on horseback, where almost all those travelling with her were killed but she did manage to escape. The most romantic coverage of the story is in Barrister Savarka's book, The Indian War of Independence, which has seemingly all of Jhansi exulting, quote, Lakshmi, put your horse now into a gallop, for Lieutenant Balka is galloping behind in order to capture you. And you, O horse, fortunate on account of the sacred treasure you carry, gallop on. Take out your sword, There, Balka is pressing close. Here is the reward for your wicked pursuit. A long sweep of her sword and Balka was violently thrown from his horse. A deadly fight took place. Those who were alive advanced forward to protect Lakshmi Bai. Wounded, Balka and his handful of men gave up the pursuit. The sword of the mother advanced triumphant, shining. These are the kinds of fables that always accompany stories of national heroes and heroines at their lowest moments. I'm minded mostly of the story of the flight of Bunny Prince Charlie after the Battle of Culloden, escaping in disguise with the help of sympathetic Highlanders. Speed, Bunny boat, like a bird on the wing, onward the sailors cry, carry the lad that's born to be king, over the sea, to sky. Following her flight from Jansi, Rani Bai rode hard, covering around 100 miles in just 24 hours, finally reaching the closest rebel stronghold at Kalpi, Here were gathered a collection of rebel leaders. She had brought no men with her, nor any money or supplies, and so she had to take a back seat to Nana Sahib, who was given command. She herself was given control of around 500 soldiers, and set up a defensive position at Lunch, a small town on the road between Jansi and Kalpi. So Hugh rose and his men were not far behind, and it was not long before Rani faced the Redcoats for a second time. It was the middle of the Indian summer, and the mercury was hitting around 50 degrees Celsius. Rani's strategy for the battle was based on the simple fact that the British cannot deal with heat. She's right, it is indeed our greatest weakness. She delayed battle until the day was at its hottest and then engaged Rose's men in what was essentially an ordered retreat back to Calpy. She knew she couldn't defeat the Redcoats but she could slow them down and exhaust them and she did a pretty good job. One British officer recalled the manner in which they conducted their retreat could not be surpassed. There was no hurry, no disorder, no rushing to the rear. All was orderly. She didn't inflict many casualties, but she made life hell for the British. However, when she and her men returned to Calpe, she found a very disunited camp. There were just far too many cooks at work, with various rebel leaders all squabbling over who should have command, what strategy they should employ, and what in fact they should be doing at all. Rose was vulnerable, his men were tired, short on water, and they were wilting under the unrelenting Indian sun. If the rebels hadn't met them in the field, they might have prevailed. But instead, they remained at Calpe and bickered, rendering all of Rani's hard work moot. All she could do was drill her men hard, making sure that they were ready for the fight that was now coming to them. Sir so Hugh Rose may have done little to prevent the appalling massacre at Jansi, but he was a fine general and regained the initiative that had been so idly refused by the rebels. He mopped up a few minor rebel positions in quick succession before reaching Kalpi on the 21st of July. That night, the Indian commanders held a council of war and, having failed to agree on a unified command, decided to fight as a series of detachments. Rani took control of the cavalry, her skills with horse and sabre having become legendary and took position on the left flank, hidden from view in a ravine. The Indian plan was to attack Rose's right flank hard, wait for him to weaken his left to reinforce it, and then for Rani to sweep in with the cavalry in a pincer movement and destroy them. It looked great on paper, as so many battle plans do, but they hadn't accounted for the fact that Rose had correctly guessed exactly what they were going to do, Therefore, he didn't fall into the rebel trap, and so when Rani launched her charge, she faced well repaired troops under a brigadier Stuart. In his dispatches, Rose described what happened next. Quote, At once a fierce combat followed. All the ravines erupted in smoke, fire, noise, and explosions. The Sepoy cavalry came out of their hiding places and advanced in groups with great discipline while firing. Only rebel after rebel was to be seen as far as the eyes could see. I rushed in and found Brigadier Stuart in the most grievous danger. While showering us steadily with bullets, the well-organised enemy divisions had almost got inside our battery of cannons from the paths that led into the ravines. Most of the horses on our side were dead or grievously wounded. The Indian sepoys were shouting gleefully, So you looted Jansi, and now you want to loot Calpier. eh? come on, we'll show you. The respect for Rani's generalship and the quality of her men is evident here. But unfortunately, the same couldn't be said for the rest of the Indian army. She had more or less rolled up Rose's right flank, but her fellow commanders had failed to pin the rest of the British army on the left and centre. And so when they broke and fled, they left Rani in danger of being surrounded as she advanced. Once again, she was forced to withdraw and again did so in good order, retreating to Gopalpur, where the rest of the rebels were gathered. The mood there was grim. All significant cities and fortresses in central India now lay in British hands, and the rebels were seemingly out of money and had no hope of reinforcements following these two major defeats. But Rani was not defeated yet. She had a plan bold plan. About 50 miles away lay the city and fortress of Gwalior, the capital of a small state led by the Maharaja Sendia. Despite unrest amongst his people, he had stayed loyal to the British throughout the rebellion. But while this had kept him safe from attack from Sir Hugh Rose, this meant that he did not have troops on which he could rely. Therefore, while his position looked strong, Rani deduced that he was actually relatively weak. If they could take Gwalior and induce the people to rise up and join them, they would have a major fortress and a robust new base of operations. Moreover, the monsoon rains were fast approaching. If they could hold on for just a couple more months, then they would have time to regroup until the rains eased off. When you're up against the wall and have everything on the line, this is the kind of play that you have to go for. She recognised that this was it. This was their last chance. And she persuaded her fellow rebel leaders to go for it. This plan was so audacious and so unexpected that Rose had no idea where the rebels were headed for a few days. He and his officers had a few theories, but they didn't give much credence to the notion that this small army would go and attack one of the biggest fortresses in central India. By the time they realised their mistake, it was too late, and they were powerless to prevent the advance. Once the rebels arrived at Gwalior, everything proceeded according to the Rani's plan. Maharaja Sindhya marched out with his army, but before battle could be joined, pretty much all of them switched sides and joined the rebels. The Maharaja only just got away with his life, but the fortress and city were lost, with barely a shot being fired. This was Rani's first, and as it turns out, only victory of the war. But it was a big one. At a stroke, all of the hard work done by the British in the theatre had been undone. Now they had to go dig the Rani and her men out of their biggest fortress yet, one that was well supplied with food, guns and ammunition, not to mention fresh troops. If they could establish themselves there, they could destabilise all of central India and prolong the rebellion. Rani urged her fellow leaders to prepare for the inevitable British counterattack, but they were infected with the fever of victory. The principal leader, Nana Sahib, was proclaimed as the new ruler of Gwalior, and through several days of parties and celebrations, which all sounds like a lot of fun, but to quote Paul Revere, The British were coming, and seemingly they were doing nothing to prepare to meet them. Rani raged at Sahib and the rest of them, but they were too busy partying. And so when news reached them that Rose was on his way, they panicked. Rani, no doubt saying, I told you so at every possible opportunity, agreed to rally the troops before the battle with one of her trademark bellicose speeches. In recognition of the skill she had shown in battle she was given command of around 10,000 troops and a critical mission. The Indians were not going to sit behind the city walls. They didn't want another Jansi. Instead, they were going to meet the British in battle, and Rani set another trap. About four miles south of the city lay Kota Kisarai, an area with deep gorges and ravines perfect for hiding her troops. So she lay in wait, and on the 17th of June, she hit the jackpot. The 8th Hussars, a cavalry regiment, along with some artillery and infantry, under the command of a Brigadier Smith, was started to approach. She must have been licking her lips with anticipation. But, very quickly, things went wrong. Smith was a very competent and astute commander, who had been at Calpee and knew Rani's M.O., He recognised the ravines as the perfect cover for an ambush, and so was well prepared for the trap once it was sprung. Rani was in the thick of the action, and there were heavy casualties on both sides. Eventually, however, the rebel line began to give way, and that was when Brigadier Smith unleashed his secret weapon, a detachment of the Eighth Hussars that he had been keeping in reserve. Their charge sent the rebels into panic, and most of the army broke and fled. It's not clear exactly what happened to Rani, as there are several conflicting reports, but it seems that she was fatally wounded during this cavalry charge. In his book, Victoria's Wars, historian Sol David quotes a British eyewitness, quote, The Rani was on horseback when the British cavalry made their surprise appearance, causing her escort to scatter, she boldly attacked one of the eight in their advance and was unhorsed and wounded, possibly by a sabre-cut. A short while later, as the British retired, she recognised her former assailant as she sat blading by the roadside and fired at him with her pistol. Unfortunately, she missed and he dispatched the young lady with his carbine. But because she was dressed as a sowar, the trooper never realised that he had cut off one of the mainstays of the mutiny. In his report on the battle to the governor-general, Sir Hugh Rose drew his attention to, quote, the great gallantry and devotion displayed by Her Majesty's Eighth Hussars in the brilliant charge which they made through the enemy's camp, of which one most important result was the death of the Rani of Jansi, who, although a lady, was the bravest and best military leaders of the rebels. Rani's funeral rites were carried out, and she was finally put to rest at the Fulgar Palace in Gwalior. Rose reported that she was buried, quote, under a tamarind tree under the rock of Gwalior, where I saw her bones and ashes. Following this defeat, it only took a few days for Rose to retake Gwalior. The resolve of the rebel army having been broken by the death of the Rani. Those that were left either surrendered or went into hiding. Among them was Damodar Rao, Rani's adopted son. For the next few years, he was forced to live in the forest with around 50 retainers, as no village would house him for fear of British reprisal. Eventually, however, he was allowed to return to civilization and he was able to live a relatively quiet life. He would eventually die in 1906 at the age of 56. Rani's campaigns in central India were some of the last actions of the Indian rebellion. While there were a few isolated rebel holdouts, India was largely pacified by the end of 1858. The death tolls are notoriously unreliable, but they ran to the hundreds of thousands, and I've seen some that come close to a million. Only a small proportion of these came in battle. Most came either due to the brutal British reprisals or famine and upheaval. I described some British atrocities at Jhansi, but that was far from an isolated incident. Mass rapes, torture and summary executions were carried out, sometimes by lawless soldiers, but other times under orders as reprisals. It's fair to say that the rebels were far from innocent of these crimes either, with tens of thousands of British living in India dying in massacres as well, along with many more pro-British Indians. While it had defeated the rebels, the East India Company would not survive the war. Shortly after the victory at Gwalior, UK government passed the Government of India Act, which formally dissolved the company and passed powers over India to the Crown. The Governor-General became the Viceroy, who would implement policies made by the Secretary of State for India in London. To top it all off, in 1877, Queen Victoria was officially crowned as Empress of India at a ceremony in Delhi. She was not there to accept this honour. Colonial policy was changed, with the end of the policy of annexations and the right enacted of rules to name adopted heirs in the absence of a natural one. What happened to Rani Lakshmi Bai would not happen again. Fearful of the common cause that rebel rulers had managed to bring about between Hindus and Muslims, a policy of divide and rule was enacted, which helped reduce the potential for insurrection, but would have dire consequences further down the line in the 20th century and indeed to this day. Back in Britain, Rani Lakshmi Bai would have a very negative reputation. As we've seen, the military commanders who fought her had a great deal of respect for her, but this didn't fit the narrative being passed back to the home islands about the nature of India and the revolt. India, in British propaganda, was often personified in feminine terms, as a jewel, as a licentious temptress. This is best expressed by Rudyard Kipling in An Interesting Condition, published in 1888. The East intrigued with Alexander. It was a liaison passenger. With the Turk, it was an affair militaire only. With the Rajput, with the Hindu, it was to pass the time. With the Portuguese, it was an aberration erratic. With the Frenchman, it was an affair of the heart. But she was a woman. The English came. "'with the gold of perfidy Albion. "'The Englishman believes that she has married her "'by the high mass of the rope and the low mass of the sabre. "'The others also believed. "'And she? Ask her. "'Her eyes are upon the vague profound "'where dwell all the shadows of her dead lovers. "'The Englishman has taken her by the arm. "'He promenades with her upon the Sundays. "'He laughs. He exhibits his teeth. "'He slaps her leg.' he also pats her upon the back. These things are the marks of the husband English. But ask her, she has seen many lovers. A woman who has seen many lovers will see more. This woman will exist forever and she will always be beautiful. An eternity of beauty and an eternity of liaisons. The liaisons of a nation. Pyramidal? Immense. Trust Kipling to write something so hideously problematic. This female personification of a nation went hand-in-hand hand with a view of Indian men as savage and brutal, with these two images combining in the form of Rani Lakshmi Bhai. She became a favourite femme fatale in post-mutiny literature, variously portrayed as a haughty rebel, a spurned lover, and a desperate pursuer of British men. In all of these portrayals, she is highly sexualized, with her eventual conquest by british men used as an allegory for the violent pacification of her nation in india her reputation has been very different in the years following the revolt her memory was suppressed by the british but a heroine like rani cannot easily be forgotten indeed the rebellion brought about what some indian scholars have called the hindi renaissance a rebirth of literature and artistic activity which was highly engaged with history politics and nationalism. This very much established Rani not so much as an Indian heroine, but as a Hindu one. Remember, when I talk of India in this series, I've been referring to the whole subcontinent, including modern nations such as Pakistan and Bangladesh. But in this literary tradition, Rani was elevated as the heroine, and Muslim figures, like the Mughal emperor, were seen as the reasons for the rebellion's failure. In 1930, Supadra Kumari Chauhan wrote the most famous work about Rani, the Jansi Ki Rani, which you may remember I read at the start of the first episode of this series. Ever since independence, it has been taught in schools. And its words, we heard the tale of the courage of the Queen of Jansi, about how gallantly she fought like a man against the British intruders, are familiar to all Indians. It is a poem of national awakening, of sacrifice and rebirth. Rani is transformed in stages from poor daughter to noble queen to vengeful warrior and finally heroic martyr. Indeed, she is deified into Durga, the Indian goddess of war. In 2007, as part of the 150th anniversary of the celebrations of the rebellion, the poem, set to song, was performed by the classical singer Supadra Mukdal to the Indian Parliament. This is not the only literature on Rani that is taught in schools. There is also Vrindavan Lal Varma's novel Jansi Kirani Lakshmi Bai. Now, I have not read this book, nor am I a literature student, but I have read possibly the most literature student description of the book in Harleem Singh's excellent book, The Rani of Jansi Gender, History and Fable in India. She describes Varma's book as quote a particularly strong example of the temporal indices of the nationalist historical novel, which ascribes glory to the ancient past, but within a contemporaneous apt for mobilisation in the future of the modern nation-state. To translate that, the book, like Jahan's poem, like all good historical literature, uses the past to describe the present, promoting Rani as a heroine of an independent modern India. This book, and the reams of modern adaptations generated over the following decades, sanitises Rani's violent actions, creating a pure and good heroine for all Hindu India. This moves away from the image of the vengeful goddess, and instead transforms her into a more maternal figure, not as a rebel raging against the oppressors, but as the creator of a new nation. As part of the centenary celebrations in 1857, one historian explained this viewpoint well, saying, quote, The Rani's noble example and supreme sacrifice have blazed the path for countless sons and daughters of India to join the freedom struggle. She is one of the immortals of our national movement. Now, all of this, of course, is somewhat ahistorical. Rani was a minor rebel leader in a minor theatre of the Indian Rebellion. She wasn't even in command of her own army, and she only won one battle. However, new nations need heroes and heroines, people around whom they can unite. But more than that, they need origin stories, an easily traceable narrative from rags to riches from which they derive pride. This is very exclusionary of non-Hindu India, of course. Indeed, in Varma's novel, the Rani explicitly rejects Muslims and Muslim culture, which is quite common across cultural representations of her. An interesting example is Saurabh Modi's Jansiki Rani, India's first Technicolor film, in which Rani seemingly brings together Hindus and Muslims, but does so under an essentially Hindu banner, raising the narrative that, to be properly Indian, you have to assimilate into Hindu culture. Now, these are all pretty old representations of Rani. So what has been done recently? Well, there is a lot, with four films and TV shows being released in 2019 alone. In preparation for this show, I watched a couple of them, the most notable being Manikarnika, the Queen of Jhansi. This was a film very much in the Braveheart school, tub-thumping nationalism without much care for history. All the good guys are really good, and all the bad guys are unbelievably awful. Unlike Braveheart, though, the acting was actually pretty good, especially by the lead, Ken Garner Out. The storytelling, though, is pretty awful. That said, if you want to give it a go, it is on Amazon Prime in the UK, and I believe in the US. Speaking of nationalism, during the Second World War some Indian nationalists teamed up with the Japanese in hopes of driving out the British. They formed the Indian National Army, with five regiments, each named after an Indian hero. And one of them, an all-female affair, was called the Rani of Jhansi Regiment. These were volunteers of Indian descent from regions occupied by the Japanese, many of whom would have never been to their mother country. Some were trained as nurses, but most were combat trained and fought in the Burma campaign. There are, of course, a vast number of statues of Rani across India, as well as schools, streets, and even a national park in the Bay of Bengal. There is no doubt that she is India's greatest heroine. And possibly more than any other woman I've covered in this series, she has come to embody a modern cause, a cause of freedom and liberty for India. This is a reputation that is probably not entirely deserved. As I said, she was a relatively small part of an unsuccessful revolt that took place nearly a century before India finally won its independence. The actions she took in her life did actually very little to advance the cause of Indian liberty. But her example did a great deal, not only to inspire Indian nationalists, but to rally the nation. Amongst the annals of female warriors, she is right up there as among the most iconic. The Indian Joan of Arc? No. She is the Indian warrior queen, the Rani of Jhansi.